All right, good morning. You guys are chatty this morning. How are we doing? Pretty good? All right, we got uh, in about uh, a few moments here, our offering buckets are going to come around. Um, so you know what to do with those. also wanted to mention that uh, if you do not have cash or check on you, we have an iPad back in the foyer, uh, which you can give through that. I believe it's through Square. You can also give online. Uh, so essentially, here's what I'm trying to say. If you want to give money, we will figure out a way to take your money. So, um, but our offering buckets are coming around. And, uh, and again, we, uh, we are incredibly thankful for the provision that God has uh, for this place. And it's remarkable to see the way that God continues to show up and provide for the needs of the church. And uh, the carpet is another one of those ways. This would have cost a ton of money to put this carpet in here. Uh, but sometimes insurance is your friend. And, uh, and it all works out. So... Um, well, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, so I get the distinct pleasure of talking about, uh, talking about the idea of obedience in Christian faith this morning. The idea of obedience. The subject of obedience is a really rousing subject. <laughs> kind of a fun one to talk about. It tends to be in a church setting. Uh, it tends to be a subject that goes over, like the old idiom states, like a lead balloon. Nobody really likes to talk about obedience. Uh, my uncle often would say it this way. Uh, instead of using that term, the lead balloon, he would say, uh, this is my uncle Bruce would say, uh, it would go over like a fart in church. How many people have an uncle like my uncle Bruce? Multiple people. Uh, obedience is a tricky thing to talk about because it militates against many of the ideals and the things that we hold as valuable in our culture. Obedience in its very essence is compliance with an order, compliance with a request, or compliance with a law. It's the act of coming under the authority of someone else. It's giving up the control of our lives. These are not things that come natural to us, and that's why obedience can be somewhat difficult to speak about in an honest way. We live in a culture where independence and control and autonomy and moral relativism are valued. And so the topic of obedience often feels like kind of a wet blanket to put on over the morning. We don't really like to discuss these things because it militates against some of the very things that we hold as valuable. But obedience is not lost in the scripture, right? The biblical story is driven by people seeking to live obedient lives to the law and to the call that God has placed over them. I'll give you a, a few very, very quick examples. The story of Noah. In the midst of a deprived world, Noah is asked to do something crazy. In fact, he's asked to do something absolutely and utterly ludicrous. Build this enormous boat on land and then just wait for the rains to come. In Hebrews, it says this about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Later on in the Old Testament, when the first king of Israel is finding it challenging to follow the ways that God has asked him to follow, Samuel the priest pulls him aside and says this to Saul, "'Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord?' Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
and to listen than the fat of rams. In the New Testament, we see a, a strong commitment to obedience. After Peter and the disciples miraculously are led out of jail, says this, and when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There are hundreds of stories we could look at to examine biblical obedience or even disobedience throughout the scripture. All of the great biblical heroes display it in some fashion or another. But perhaps the place where we see obedience most acutely is in Jesus, right? The foundation of his life was one of obedience. I'll give you uh, uh, two different things that he says about this. John 5, 30, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Later on in John, he says this, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The Bible gives us both examples of obedience and disobedience. The incarnation gives us a perfect picture of what obedience should look like. Throughout his life, Christ lived under the authority of his Father. He willingly and unwaveringly followed the will of God. So with this as a foundation, I want to spend the rest of the morning look, looking at how obedience should affect our lives. In order to do this, I plan to look at three somewhat interrelated but kind of disconnected thoughts about obedience. Let's pray, and then uh, we will jump in this morning. God, this morning we, um, we ask as a community that you, that you would convict our hearts, Lord. I believe all of us live somewhere in, uh, in the space where we're seeking obedience in our lives but struggle in so many different areas. We struggle to follow your will. We struggle to be disciplined. We struggle uh, to hear from you because we have so much distraction. God, give us, give us clear minds this morning hearts that would be open to your word, to your truth. Allow us to hear from you, God. Allow us to be challenged by you. May we live into the reality of what being truly obedient to your will looks like. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
So this first thought about obedience I call the obedience and belief conundrum. And here's what I mean by this. True obedience and belief are inexorably connected. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the truth is that so long as we hold both sides of the proposition together, they contain nothing inconsistent with right belief. But as soon as one is divorced from the other, it is bound to prove a stumbling block. Only those who believe obey, is what we say to the part of the believer's soul which obeys. And only those who obey believe, is what we say to that part of the soul of the obedient which believes. It is the first half of the proposition stands alone. The believer is exposed to the danger of cheap grace, which is another word for damnation. If the second half stands alone, the believer is exposed to the danger of salvation through works, which is another word for damnation. Our beliefs undergird our obedience, while at the same time, our obedience justifies our beliefs. So what exactly does this mean for us? It means this. When we say we believe, this has to mean something for our actions. To believe in and follow Christ demands us to live according to a certain set of standards and practices and actions. When we align ourselves with the gospel, it necessitates our effort to live according to the will of Jesus. Now, here is where I want to be careful. This is part of the message that could be heard as perpetrating a works-based gospel, right? Just what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. You could think that this idea removes the need for the grace of Christ and that I'm speaking about uh, our need or a need for us as a people to work in certain ways toward salvation. Here is the truth. We have been saved by grace, but it is our work toward obedient lives that moves us toward Christ. Paul speaks about it this way in Philippians. Just after he speaks about Jesus' perfect obedience, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is an unmistakable theme throughout the New Testament pointing us to the fact that our lives should look markedly different in the way that we act and the way that we speak. The idea that our salvation purely by grace is simply the opening of our hearts for Jesus to live without the need for us to change our thoughts, our actions, is crazy. Salvation is not just a single event that happens in a moment of time. James Atkins says this, the faithful Christian can say in faith and hope, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It's a process that begins through the grace of Christ, is continued as we live obediently to Christ and is fulfilled when we stand in judgment before Christ. This is the place where our belief and obedience cannot be parsed out from one another. It's not our work that saves us, but it's our work that proves that we have, in fact, been saved. If I were to assess that which plagues the current church, I think I would argue that obedience to Christ is a far 
greater problem than belief in Christ. Many in this church, not just this church, but maybe the church global, still play fast and loose with their lives. Pinballing between poor decisions, low morality, and a lack of discipline. In a lot of ways, we have diminished the role of obedience in our lives by concluding the grace of Christ covers over our conscious, sinful actions. Now, the beauty of this statement is the far-reaching grace of Christ does cover over our conscious, sinful actions. However, if belief and disobedience are inexorably connected and we are still living these types of lives, then I think you have to soberly ask yourself, did you ever really believe in the first place? My second thought about obedience. I title it, Because I Said So. I think in part why we struggle to live obediently to the call of Christ is that we have trained ourselves to to associate our obedience with some sort of given reward. Much of our behavior and habits and actions can be influenced by reward systems. So I'll throw this out to you guys. Can you name some different reward systems that we operate in just in our daily lives? Salary. Perfect. So uh, maybe bonuses. You hit a certain number, you get a bonus. What else? Rewards cards. How many people have 35 coffee rewards cards? (laughs) Like six from the same thing because they can never find them. Yeah. Rewards cards. What else? I'm sorry, what? Grades. Good. Gold stars. Good. Uh, One of the happiest days of my month or or every couple weeks when I get gas is when I go to Safeway and I put in my number and I get like 20 cents off my next gas purchase. Like I feel like a total champion when (laughs) when that happens. Uh, Bonuses, credit cards, uh, coffee punch cards, happy hour, so forth. Like we, uh, our entire culture is in a lot of ways driven by reward systems that we have in place. Immediate rewards drive much of our behavior. It drives a lot of what we do. This is where obedience to Christ is different. Our obedience to the call of Jesus in our lives is often void of an initial immediate reward. In fact, very often, obedience to Christ is so countercultural, it will lead to suffering more than reward in the short term. Now, certainly there are rewards to obediently following Christ. Joy, peace, honor, fulfillment, purpose. But besides the fact that these things are all kind of ethereal in nature, they are also often only experienced in the long term. Here's what I mean by this. Say you're invited on a long weekend trip. You leave on a Friday, you're not going to get back until late Monday night, but you no longer have days off. You've used all of your vacation time. You can either politely decline, believing that living truthfully is important, honoring the the environment, the work, the corporation that you work for, believing that that is truly important, or you can call in sick and go wine tasting with your friends for the weekend. Declining brings the reward of honesty and integrity. 
while accepting means you get to go have a fun weekend in Walla Walla, right? There's an immediate reward, but then there's one reward that is maybe more long-term, something that can't necessarily be felt when you truly live in the way that Christ would like you to live, with honor, with integrity, with honesty. This one might make a little bit more sense. When you meet that girl at the bar on Friday night, you can either close the conversation maintaining a level of respect and honor for who she is as a person, or you can invite her back to your apartment and see where the night goes. In that instant, the reward of respecting and honoring another person maybe not is always as appealing as seeing what could happen later that night. We are intrinsically wired to seek temporal rewards for our actions. And because so, it's become very difficult to seek to live an obedient life where the rewards are not always tangible, where the rewards are not always visible, where sometimes the rewards are not even present right then. This is where the idea of submission becomes important. You see, obedience to Christ is not about reward. Obedience to Christ is about submission. It's about giving up the control that you have. It's about living under the authority of the servant king who has died for us. Submission in its very nature assumes the release of control. Submission assumes obedience not because the reward that might follow, but because you have been asked by the one who's in authority. Much of the final chapters of John uh, is really Jesus trying to explain this interaction that he has with the Father about him coming under the will of the Father. A couple of uh, verses you could look up would be John 12, 49 and 50, John 15, 10 and 11. Uh, and I want to read you this one, John 14, 10 and 11. It says this, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Russ spoke about this uh, a few weeks ago. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. You see, for Jesus, obedience was a function of submission to the authority of the Father. A place that I see this idea of submission play out often in my life is with my kids. My kids are now in first grade and preschool. Uh, they're old enough to begin to negotiate things with me. They're old enough to begin to question some of the decisions that we may, uh, that we may have or some of the things that we ask them to do. My wife and I both see this most acutely around dinner time. How many people have ever tried to feed a five-year-old before? Like, I have to mentally gear up for dinner time with my kids. And I want to give you just a little taste of uh, maybe some of the interaction that we would have. This is specifically with my youngest son, who is five. It would start out something like this. Hey, uh, I got your grilled cheese sandwich here. And then from the living room, he would yell, well, I didn't want grilled cheese. And I'd say, yeah, but you asked for grilled cheese 10 minutes ago, and I just made it. <laughs> yeah, well, now I want graham crackers. We're not eating graham crackers for dinner, Kempton. That's not what we do. Why not? 
Uh, because if you eat graham crackers for dinner, you're going to end up getting heart disease, Kempton. So come and eat your grilled cheese. And then Kempton says, what's heart disease? And I say, it's not important. Just please come into the kitchen and let's start eating your grilled cheese sandwich. Well, can I have some juice and ketchup as well? Ugh, you might as well just eat the graham crackers at that point. <laughs> what? Nothing. Just please come in and eat the grilled cheese. So now he's sitting at the table and he looks at the grilled cheese and he says, well, how many bites do you think I need to eat? Uh, you need to eat the entirety of the grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> Why? Because you have not eaten dinner yet and you need to eat the grilled cheese sandwich. Well, I'm not even hungry anymore. Eat the grilled cheese sandwich, Kempton. Why? And then at that point, what every parent loves to do says this. Because I said so. This is where the conversation ultimately breaks down when you talk to kids. You see, as a father, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as a father of a five-year-old, I don't think that I always need to justify why I have my child do something like eating dinner. I think I can say with confidence that in those situations, I probably know what's best for him more so than he does. This conversation is a microcosm of our minds and the way that we try to rationalize our actions often. We question why and justify our behavior when really what we need to remember is that in a fatherly way, the reason doesn't need to be much more than because I said so. Does there really need to be a better more detailed answer to why we should be obedient to the God of the universe than because I said so. It's one thing to talk about Jesus and occasionally engage in some spiritual practices. It's another thing to believe in Jesus and hand your life over to his call in an act of submission. My last thought. Bev Doolittle was on to something. When I was 10 years uh, old or so, I developed, uh, well, I, I'll say this, I was incredibly sophisticated as a 10-year-old boy. Uh, or I was super weird, and I developed a weird fascination with the painter Bev Doolittle. How many people have ever heard of the painter Bev Doolittle? Most of those people are uh, 65 years old and older. <clears throat> Who is Bev Doolittle? For everybody uh, younger, I'm glad you asked. She is an American watercolor painter, typically painting landscapes of the American West, often with wildlife and Native American influence. This is directly from Wikipedia. Uh, what's unique about Bev Do, which is the nickname that I like to give her, <laughs> is that she uses a, uh, what's called a camouflaging technique in her paintings. So I have a couple of her paintings, and I'm not, I think maybe, oh no, the screen works here. Can we turn off the lights? Because it might be helpful to uh, see that. So this would be a Bev Doolittle painting right here. I currently do not own any Bev Doolittle paintings, but I do have like a, a book of her paintings. So you see this kind of waterfall scene, and you see a, a gentleman riding a horse, uh, with, or two horses there. What else do you notice about it? Yeah, there's like faces kind of throughout, through the rocks and stuff. Let's go to the next one. All right, so you see that fox right in the middle. But then on either side, 
harder to see would be two Native American men riding uh, horses that look just like trees. I don't know if that's a real type of horse, but. <laughs> and we'll go one more. This one is incredibly hard to see. I recognize that. Uh, you've got a line of all of these horses with uh, some guy from the American West leading them. In the very, very back, you see uh, two men untying that final horse. All right, we can turn the lights on. <laughs> so as a 10-year-old boy, I was fascinated with these paintings. For whatever reason, I just, I thought they were so cool. What I loved about her paintings is that there was much more going on than what you would initially see. Your eye is drawn to that thing right in the center, the fox in the center, but there's a lot more going on in that painting than just that initial glance. This, I believe, is a lot like obedience. You see, it's easy to portray obedience on the surface, but it takes a lot more discipline and maturity to obediently follow the way of Christ when no one is watching. The Christian faith has never been a lowest common denominator proposition, meaning do just enough to get your butt into heaven. It's always been a call to be greater than we ever thought that we could be. It's a call to be more like Jesus every single day. And in this way, true obedience is manifested in the decisions we often make when no one would maybe ever know. This is where true obedience is about being different. Different than the world around. The scripture talks about it in the way that we are a chosen people, that we are set apart, that we are to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In our obedience, we are moving to be holy. And being holy is about being set apart. It's not just adherence to a certain set of rules or laws, but a willingness to be transformed every single day. Bev's paintings are incredible. But it's not so much that she's a gifted painter, but the fact that there is a depth and meaning to the story that is not first seen. So it is with obedience. It's not just arbitrarily being a certain way. It's the conformity of our will and the quiet transformation of our lives. Obedience has never been the end. It's always been the means to reach the end of holiness. I want to conclude with a thought uh, from C.S. Lewis, who speaks about this. Lewis says this, People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargaining in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I will reward you. And if you don't, 
I'll do the other thing. I do not think that this is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning to the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into uh, the central thing either into a heaven creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, and idiocy, and rage and impotence, and internal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. Our obedience to the call of Christ in our lives is not propositional, nor is it grounded in some sort of exchange. The scripture is clear that we have been saved by faith, not by our own doing, so that no one may boast. The work of salvation has been done on our behalf. Now our lives and the ways in which our lives are lived become the testimony to that very work. Every action, every thought, every word spoken, whether others know it or not, moves us in a direction. Either we are moving toward Christ as we seek to live obediently or we are moving away from Christ as we choose to live for ourselves. Our obedience or lack thereof is a vehicle by which we move toward or away from Christ. This does not mean that we will not make mistakes. We will. There will be times we mess up and it's in these times we can be thankful for the unbelievable grace that Jesus offers. However, we need not forget. When we say we believe, when we claim to know and love Jesus, we are now part of the family, and being part of that family means that we have accepted the reality to live an obedient life and to seek holiness above all else. Let us pray.